Okay, so a few months ago, one of our producers came in and was super excited to talk about something. The Postal Service. To be honest, we really weren't that excited or interested (laughs) in talking about the Postal Service. You know, it's something that, like, neither of us really thought about, right? Who who, who spends time doing that? I mean, not me. (laughs) (laughs) But we started reading up on the history and we were like, you know what? There's something here. So we decided to talk to someone who has thought a lot about the Postal Service. I am Winifred Gallagher. I am a journalist. My book is called How the Post Office Created America. The interview was super interesting, but, you know, we didn't really do anything with it. But then this happened. New policies at the U.S. Postal Service are causing backlogs, and workers warn mail-in ballots for November's election could be impacted. Hundreds of post boxes taken off the streets, mail sorting machines taken offline, overflowing mail bins, and reports that worker overtime has been cut. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy defended his moves to remove mail sorting machines and cut overtime as cost-cutting measures and claims his decisions have nothing to do with voting. The Democrat-led House of Representatives approved sending $25 billion to the U.S. Postal Service and blocked any operational changes that could delay mail this November. President Trump says he will veto the legislation if the bill passes in the Republican-led Senate. The reality is this controversy didn't start a month ago. It's been building for decades. And despite that, the Postal Service processes and delivers 181.9 million pieces of mail every day across the U.S. And fun fact, The Postal Service has a 91% approval rating. That's the highest of any government agency, a spot it consistently holds. And it's probably because the Postal Service has been a consistent part of American life since even before the United States was founded. When we come back, Winifred Gallagher is going to tell us the story of the Postal Service and why it matters so much today. I'm Rand Abdel Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. And you're listening to Throughline from NPR. This is Rafael Macarosa from San Francisco, California, and you're listening to Throughline from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. Welcome to Banking Reimagined. Capital One checking and savings accounts have no fees or minimums and a top-rated banking app that lets you manage your money anytime, anywhere. Check on the account balance, deposit checks, pay bills, and transfer money on the go. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. I'm Lisa Hagen. And I'm Chris Axel. We're the hosts of No Compromise, NPR's new podcast exploring one family's mission to reconstruct America using two powerful tools, guns and Facebook. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Join us for the No Compromise podcast from NPR. Winifred Gallagher started thinking about the role of the post office because... For 15 years, I've more or less commuted between New York City and a little cowboy town in Wyoming. She spoke to us from that little cowboy town, Du Bois, Wyoming. And she said that taking that trip so often gave her 
a lot of time to think about what linked one half of the country to the other half of the country, and it was the post office. Can you describe how the founders thought about the postal system and why it was such an important part of the nation from the beginning, in terms of being able to connect different parts of the colonies that then became a country, a nation? Well, the post office was really woven into America's DNA by Benjamin Franklin. He was, of course, a founding father, but also our first postmaster general. His earlier experience of running the primitive mail system that linked the Great Britain's 13 colonies gave him the managerial skills. But much more important, it also convinced him that these 13 very quarrelsome little fiefdoms would be far more powerful together than apart. The Patriots' first concerted acts included the creation of underground communications networks that enabled them to conspire under Mm. the British radar. The first was called the Committees of Correspondence and then the Constitutional Post. These informal networks were the thing that linked Thomas Jefferson and Sam Adams and the other revolutionaries enabled them to talk treason, but they were also uh, not just the incubators of the new post office department, as it would be called, uh, which was established in 1775, but of the United States government itself. You could argue that the the first U.S. government was really an information and communications network. Wow. So So, it makes sense that it was super important to the founders, right? It was partly the reason why the country was able to be created, it sounds like. I mean, information, communication. That's right. It was the nervous system of the republic, the early republic. And the same people who ran these communications networks ran, ended up running the government. Things changed a lot uh, in 1792 because Benjamin Rush and James Madison, I mean, these guys were political philosophers. They weren't just like some guys. They were Uh, very impressive intellectuals in their own rights. They realized that a democracy, if it's going to work, it requires knowledgeable voters. So they decided that they would use their new postal network to create an informed electorate. And this is really crucial. They devised this kind of Robin Hood scheme that used the very costly postage for letter mail. Then most people didn't even get one letter a year. They were mostly sent by businessmen and lawyers. So they soaked these businessmen on their letter mail, and that money subsidized mailing cheap, uncensored newspapers to every citizen. This was considered uh, wildly radical in Europe. In Europe, the, the governing powers didn't want the people to know what was going on. So this really very enlightened postal policy is the thing that really sparked America's very lively, disputatious political culture, which we see every day, and also made us the global communications and information superpower of the world with amazing speed. So basically, given the speed of the information was being shared, how did this sort of change the trajectory of the country in those early years? Well, The post mandate to deliver the news throughout a very rapidly expanding country, it was already moving west over the Appalachians, that very quickly organized the the country's physical and social landscape around post offices that were connected by post roads. 
in order to get the newspapers to the people, the department had to jumpstart a transportation industry. There was no way to get from point A to point B until the post office started paying initially horseback riders and stagecoaches to deliver the mail as quickly as possible. So by the time de Tocqueville came to America in 1831, the system already had, our mail system already had twice as many post offices as Great Britain and five times more than his own France. He was astonished mm. Uh, mm. at how quickly, mm. how quickly it developed. Of course, most newspapers then had no way to distribute themselves widely other than the mail. I mean, if you had a newspaper, you could sell whatever you could sell on the street corner, but you wanted to have like a more wide distribution, you you depended on the post office. Part of the mandate to create an informed electorate also uh, led the post to have very low prices for mailing books and magazines, which still exist today. If you're mailing somebody a book, always write book rate on the front. You pay like less than half. And in a country, a lot of which was agrarian for, you know, well, well, well into the 20th century, this business of sending magazines and books very cheap throughout the country really amounted to what was for a lot of people an informal educational system, sort of like a secondary educational system, where people really learned about what they got the National Geographic and they got, you know, Ladies Home Journal to learn about health. And uh, this was really the way people kept themselves informed and you know, educated. But it wasn't all success in the early days of the post office. Coming up, the new postal service stumbles and nearly falls. Hi, my name is Manjurin Safat. I'm from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and you're listening to Throughline from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Ancestry. Every family has a story. Bring yours to life with Ancestry. An Ancestry DNA test can tell you where your ancestors are from, and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their unique stories. What will you discover? It's easy to get started. Start your Ancestry 14-day free trial or get an Ancestry DNA kit at Ancestry.com slash NPR. Some days, reading a bunch of headlines just isn't enough. You need to let the news sink in. On Consider This, NPR's new daily news podcast, we can help you do that. Each day, in about 10 minutes, you can find out not just what happened, but why and what it means. Consider This. New episodes every weekday afternoon from NPR. So, I mean, it sounds kind of like this project, right? The the Postal Service project that the Founding Fathers set in motion right at the beginning of the creation of the country was, like, remarkably successful, right? Like, it was helping to circulate, you know, newspapers and, I guess, you know, helping that industry grow as well. It sounds kind of like a, a pretty ideal story, but I, I'm just wondering, like, is there a flip side to that? Like, was it all just like good news for the Postal Service um, in those days? Well, no, the the worst crisis that the post office ever experienced was actually in the 1840s. 
which is uh, kind of an interesting story because everybody's talking about the crisis now. Back in the 1840s, the post office almost went out of business because people got annoyed with the high cost of letter mail. People were better educated. Uh, They had things like paper and pens, and they wanted to be like the people in England. They wanted to be able to send mail frequently. So they revolted and they started patronizing private mail carriers that competed with post, charge much less than the post for carrying letters. So Congress had its back to the wall and had to enact some very important reforms, one of which was reducing letter postage to mere pennies. It was, I think, three cents. Then Congress authorized America's first wildly popular convenience stamp so that people didn't have to go to the post office and have with each letter and have it weighed and yada, yada, yada. So this was, it doesn't sound like much to us today, but at the time it was, it was like email. It was all of a sudden people had cheap, speedy correspondence. Sometimes if you were on a railroad line, you could even have the same day reply. You could invite a friend in one city for dinner and get his or her reply that afternoon and and make your meal. It, It profoundly changed America's personal relationships. People could have these long distance relationships that didn't cost a fortune. This aspect of it became especially important during the great migration to the West, which was happening, you know, starting in the late 40s. Uh, really bloomed uh, after the Civil War. But the only way people who left the farm, you know, in Ohio and ended up in the Washington Territory, the only way they had to stay in touch was through the mail, through letters. So this became a really important way of keeping the East Coast and the West Coast connected. And to get that job done, the Post had to subsidize stagecoaches, boats, and eventually the Transcontinental Railroad to connect those two coasts together and to allow people to communicate and the economy to communicate. I mean, bear in mind, after the gold rush changed everything, for, for most of our history, America was just this little band along the East Coast and into the South. It's like kind of a narrow a uh, relatively narrow band that all of a sudden in 1848, you had the gold rush, you had the end of the Mexican-American War that brought us the whole Southwest and the uh, incorporation of the Oregon Territory. All of a sudden, we had this huge country. And how are you going to connect those two pieces together? I mean, this is what I mean when I say the post office created America. It really did forge those, those two halves of America together. Cheap letters were also important, of course, during the Civil War. It was the only way that soldiers had a way to keep in touch with their loved ones. But Montgomery Blair, who was Abraham Lincoln's really brilliant postmaster general, as brilliant executives do, saw the Civil War, the crisis of the Civil War, as an opportunity to improve mail service, uh, especially because he didn't have to pay for the services throughout the South. So he had, he had some money to spend. And he expanded the very fast railway mail service started the first safe money order so that the troops could send their salaries home to their families. I mean, bear in mind, until then, the only way you could send money or valuables or a will or anything like that, jewelry, was to put it in the mail and hope it got there, you know, hope no one stole it. So money orders were a game changer. And he also established home delivery in the cities so that 
previously people had to go to their local general post office and pick up their mail. Now people got their mail delivered to them in the cities. So in that time of crisis, that was the Civil War, the Postal Service innovated, it sounds like. You would think, naturally, that you know the country's splitting in half, essentially, and there being a massive bloody war, it would put the Postal Service at risk. But it sounds like, no, they actually innovated and tried new things. Yeah, he really pivoted and used it as an opportunity to modernize the services. Again, as I said, he didn't have to pay for the South. So, you know, he had some latitude there. During the war, uh, Lincoln actually let the mail be delivered in the South for, I think, about two months before he finally stopped it. And the South had to start its own post office. Both sides had to reissue, completely reissue new stamps, the South, because they didn't have any in the North, because they didn't want old stamps to be used as money by, by Southerners. So there was a lot of action in the philatelic world just trying to uh, get stamps that jogged with what was going on with politics. So after the Civil War, this is like an incredibly dramatic moment for the country. You now have right a whole group of people who are now free. And, and one of the things that I would just love to get your take on is from this point on, it seems like the Postal Service creates opportunities for African-Americans, um, for women, for people who over the next hundred years would start to get their rights. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective, what you see as some of the real important inflection points. It's still everybody who goes to the post office, rich or poor, or black or white, you're, you're just buying your stamp. And so it always has been a, um, a very much of an equalizer. Interestingly, women in particular have done well during wars. During a war, all the men are away fighting and the post office needs somebody to handle the mail. So even during the Revolutionary War, women were very active in postal services and and were complimented on their patriotism for keeping that up. The same is true during Western migration. The men were just too busy and there weren't there just weren't enough men to do all the jobs that needed doing so women got a lot of opportunities in the west to serve as postmasters this was certainly also true during the civil war uh, montgomery blair had women working right in the federal headquarters in washington dc which was considered quite outré at the time they were very important in the in the dead letter office where all the mail that got lost and root would go and these very intelligent women would try to figure out and often did figure out where where the stuff was supposed to go from these very vestigial little addresses. Um, and after the Civil War, in terms of uh, the, the Republicans' policy of reconstruction, the Post was the first major institution really to employ large numbers of African Americans in all capacities, including in executive roles. They weren't just letter carriers. Bear in mind that the post office was the federal government's most important function from the Declaration of Independence until World War One. It was the most important thing the federal government did, the biggest thing the federal government did. In fact, it really was the federal government, the way most people experienced it. Most people, if you were in Indiana or you know, New Mexico, your postmaster, who was a federal employee, that was that was the closest you got to the federal government. 
So the fact that this enormous institution employed both women and African-Americans was really a, a game changer for both of those groups and is still a major employer of both of those groups. Coming up, the post office adapts again, this time as the century turns and the inequality in America grows. This is Will. And I'm from Addison, Texas, and you're listening to Throughline from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. Teladoc is here for you with 24-7 access to board-certified doctors who can diagnose and treat non-emergency conditions like sinus infections, allergies, rashes, and more. And Teladoc's doctors can, where authorized, call in a prescription to be filled at the pharmacy of your choice. Download the app today or visit teladoc.com NPR. In 1889, John Wanamaker was named Postmaster General. He was kind of an odd fit. The very wealthy creator of a wildly popular department store, Wanamaker was nonetheless critical of the industrial robber barons who had amassed their vast fortunes, often through monopolies. In the post office, Winifred Gallagher says John Wanamaker, her favorite Postmaster General, by the way, saw a way the government could help level the playing field for everyday Americans. The post office's golden age really was overlapped with the progressive era, which lasted from 1890 to World War I. Early on in that, in that process, Wanamaker picked up on the discontent that average Americans were experiencing. They wanted the federal government to protect them from the Industrial Revolution and the economic injustices, the robber barons, that they, they, people were looking to the federal government for, for economic uh, protection from, from, you know, all kinds of abuses, but robber barons were, you know, dripping with diamonds and, and sailing around on yachts and a lot of farmers and, and mine workers and uh, average people couldn't even make ends meet. So, uh, Wanamaker was eager to defend democracy from these rapacious monopolies. So he laid the foundations for the great turn of the century postal innovations like rural free delivery and parcel post. You have to realize uh, in, in America was still largely, mostly agrarian until 1900. Those people did not have free delivery of mail. They had to go off and walk or ride a horse to a post office a couple of miles away. They were very cut off from mainstream society, and they particularly suffered in terms of getting consumer goods. They basically had to pay for whatever the little general store in their town wanted to charge for a pair of boots or a wood stove or whatever it was they needed. Uh, they had no recourse. And after rural free delivery and parcel post, they could get goods delivered to their door for a fair price. You know, before parcel post, the monopolies would deliver the goods for you and charge, you know, like many times what parcel post charged. So these two things, being able to get books and magazines and letters every day 
and being able to order goods from the new uh, consumer catalogs has really uh, kind of integrated agrarian uh, Americans into the mainstream society, uh, which was an enormous boon for them. There's a lot of testimonials to how people who felt very isolated and cut off, it just was like a whole new ball game for them when they could be part of the communication structure. Uh, he also laid the groundwork for something that you hear a lot about today at a time when banks ignored the needs of many average citizens. People you know, couldn't get just like today, they, they couldn't get checking accounts or anything. The banks just wanted to deal with the well-off. The post office provided basic financial services to average people. And this was did particularly well during the Great Depression where you could do simple banking at, at your post office. So uh, this is something that people, my senator, Kristen Gillibrand, was trying to get the post office to start up postal savings again. Winifred, you, you spent a lot of time, obviously, thinking about writing about the post office and, you know, on those like long rides to Wyoming, you were thinking about it. I guess I'm wondering, you know, for someone listening today in the present context, why do you think this story matters to, to Americans today? And, and what would you want them to take away from understanding the role it had in creating the country? I think just that. Uh, the post office did arguably create the country and create our political culture. There are good days and bad days, but we do have this extraordinary uh, freedom of information and communications that's kind of made us who we are. I think the, there are three possibilities going forward, actually. I think, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, the post should be privatized. That's not a popular position. Most people are love the post office and they don't see why they should have to give it up just for the sake of privatizing it. Um, the other possibility is that the um, there could be a massive federal investment to retrofit the post office for the digital age. I think that is politically implausible because it's very hard to get funding for anything these days other than military, I guess. But that is something. In the 1980s, the post office really dropped the ball. The post office could have and should have seen that the transition was going to be from paper mail to electronic mail. And it just didn't have the nerve and lacked the congressional leadership to make that decision, which is really tragic. But that's water under the bridge. I think the likeliest compromise, we need to preserve the the nation's very enviable communications infrastructure that, I mean, imagine it goes, it goes to every address in America six days a week. That's an extraordinary uh, faculty that a lot of countries don't have. So you could preserve it by cutting unnecessary services such as Saturday letter mail, which no one wants except, you know, the, the postal labor unions and the advertisers and improving the profitable ones, notably delivery of important hard copy documents and parcels. I mean, as we all know right now during the, our health crisis, parcels are very important. Uh, and I think in these uncertain times, it's hard to overstate the value of a delivery system that can reach every house with potentially urgently needed materials, including stimulus checks and voting forms 
to say nothing of medical tests and drugs as well as regular mail. So I think it is an excellent time for people to think about the value of this system. And we've kept it for 240 years. And also to remember that the post almost went out of business in the 1840s. And then when it went on to have its golden age, it started doing things that didn't people never thought the post office would do. So I think if you look at it from a historical perspective, it it really is time to give it a give it a good think before you tamper with it too much. Winifred, thank you so much for your time. It's really fun to talk to you. I enjoyed it. Winifred Gallagher is a journalist and author of the book How the Post Office Created America. That's it for this week's show. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and you've been listening to Throughline from NPR. This episode was produced by me. And me and... Jamie York. Lawrence Wu. Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Julie Kane. Fact-checking for this episode was done by Kevin Vocal. Thanks also to Camille Smiley and Anya Grunman. Our music was composed by Ramtin and his band, Drop Electric, which includes... Naveed Marvi. Sho Fujiwara. Anya Mizani. And I want to take a quick second to shout out a new short doc from NPR's video team about the March on Washington. They talked to six people who were at the march in 1963 and asked them a bunch of questions. Stuff like, does it feel like history is repeating itself? Do they expect their grandchildren to return to Washington in half a century? It's a great video. Check it out at youtube.com NPR. If you like something you heard or you have an idea for an episode, please write us at throughline at npr.org or hit us up on Twitter at throughline NPR. Thanks for listening.